Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 1. First uh, Peter chapter 1 is where uh, we'll spend our time together this morning. You know, companies spend millions and millions of dollars every year uh, in an effort to raise brand awareness. In, in fact, uh, there's a, an entire way, there's, there's an entire pyramid uh, to think through about uh, how uh, brand awareness is thought of. Every, everything from a brand being on uh, the top of your mind all the way down uh, to being not familiar with the brand. And, and many of these companies have been remarkably successful, whether it be with a catchphrase, a slogan, whether it be with a logo, a, a mark, or, or even a color. So if I said something like, just do it, then you would think of Nike, right? Uh, if I said, I'm loving it, you would think of, uh, when I say brown, what do you think of? UPS, right? I didn't have to say packages. I didn't say anything else, right? UPS. When, when uh, we see that large uh, brown box truck coming, right? We think, what can brown do for you? Right, UPS has figured out a way uh, to capitalize on this, and so their slogan has nothing to do with boxes or with parcels or with delivery, but with their color. Right, they've figured it out. When I see that gray, that smaller gray uh, truck making its way, I just say, I'll see you later, right? Because I figure the Amazon man's on his way to my house at some point. <laughs> but companies spend millions and millions of dollars. I, I read a, a study that, that Coca-Cola that they, that brand enjoys 92% global brand awareness. What that means is that 92% of the population of planet Earth knows what Coca-Cola is. They spend all kinds of time and money and research and energy coming up with what they are going to be known for. Coming up with how people are going to recognize who they are. Now, I don't think that Christianity has a brand. I don't think Christianity has a, a, a logo or anything like that. If it did, it would be Jesus Christ and him crucified, is what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. But I do think that there are things that should mark us as believers. And I think there's one thing, and, and Peter shows us this in this passage, one, one truth that should mark all of us as Christians, and it's this. It's that a life changed by the gospel is a life marked by holiness. A life changed by the gospel is a life marked by holiness. So look with me here at 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 13, we're going to actually read down to verse 3 of chapter 2. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Starting in verse 13, the Spirit says to us this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you go to the Lord with me in prayer? Father, thank you for meeting with us today. Father, you have promised that you will inhabit the praises of your people. You've, you've told us that whenever your word is read, that you are there, that when we gather together, that you are among us. And so, Father, we recognize that you are here this morning. And Father, we, we ask that you would move and that you would work in our hearts. Lord, that you would change us and that you would, you would show us our great need and the great value of holiness today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, a life changed by the gospel is indeed a, a life that is marked by holiness. And we, we see in this passage a, a few ways that we are to be holy. And so first we see this, uh, to be holy because of who you are. Be holy because of who you are. Now, often what we think we need isn't what we really need. Uh, oftentimes, what we actually need isn't readily apparent, that we, we can't always see it very clearly. And, and that's the situation that, that we find ourselves in this passage. Remember, Peter's writing to uh, this, uh, this group of believers who are suffering and who are struggling. And, and we might expect, we might even anticipate uh, to find Peter giving them strategies for coping with their suffering. We might expect to, to find Peter telling his audience that, that your suffering will be easier or your, your suffering will be less if you do this or you do that. But instead, what Peter says is he says that in the midst of your suffering, you need to live as holy believers. You, you need to live as holy to the Lord, which actually is only going to elevate the fact that they are different rather than minimize the fact that they are different. Now, the, the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, it's actually one long run-on sentence. And in these verses, there are only indicatives and never imperatives. Here's what that means. That in those 12 verses, Peter only ever tells us what to believe. He never tells us what to do. He only tells us truths to know. He doesn't say, do this or do that. Well, that changes here in this section. That, that changes here in verse 13. In fact, Peter begins to show what the gospel truth of those, 12, those first 12 verses mean for our lives right now. So look with me at verse 13. He says, therefore, so what he's doing is he's building off of what he has said. He, he's building off the argument that he has already made. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action 
And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, preparing your minds for action. This is literally girding up your loins. So it's this picture uh, of a, a man in the, the ancient Near East during Peter's time. Uh, They wore long flowing robes, long flowing gowns, and it made it difficult to do uh, physical activity. It it made it difficult to do physically strenuous things. So this idea of girding up your loins is is picking up your road, picking up your ground, uh, tucking it in so that you can be ready to move. So the way you might think of this this today is roll up your sleeves. Roll up your sleeves and get ready, but, but notice what he says. He says, prepare your minds for action. He goes on, he says, in being sober-minded. In other words, being focused, being mentally alert. What he's saying here is he's saying, don't be distracted by what is happening in the world around you. Don't be distracted by the suffering. Don't be distracted by the trials. Don't be distracted by the pain. Instead, look what he says at the end of verse 13. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love that word fully. Set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. Not mostly on the grace of Jesus Christ, not a lot on the grace of Jesus Christ, but set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. Set set your hope fully on the return of Jesus. That's our problem, isn't it? Our, Our problem is not that we we don't set our hope on Jesus. Our problem is, is that we don't set our hope fully on Jesus, right? We set our hope on Jesus and this, on Jesus and that. And and what Peter's doing here is he's highlighting the great danger of distraction. See, here's here's what's so dangerous about distraction. Uh, Distraction forces you to take your attention from where it should be and place it on what it shouldn't be. Maybe you have experienced this before. Maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. Uh, But every once in a while, I will be in my office uh, working on my sermon or something else and a friend will text me a funny video and I think, I can't let that sit, right? I've got to watch that video because I want to be a good friend, right? And then I go down this rabbit hole of uh, just crazy videos or uh, a thought pops in my mind and I think, I need to go talk to this person. I need to go uh, tell uh, that person. This week, I, I called... Anna, just because I had heard a funny joke that I thought the kids would like, and I can't sit on that, right? Like, that's, I'm blessing my family uh, in, in those ways. But distraction is so dangerous. You know, it's, it can be permissible in an office, but what about distraction when we're driving? Or distraction when we're cooking or distraction these ways, that can be catastrophic. The, the same is true of spiritual distraction. When we turn our gaze and turn our hope on things other than fully on Jesus Christ, we are walking towards danger. We are walking towards a place that we do not want to be. So what does it look like to be focused on Jesus, to set our hope fully on Jesus? Well, look at verse 14. He says, as as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. See, when we're distracted, when our, our hope isn't set fully on Jesus, what happens is, is sin begins to drive us. 
Understand that. If your hope is set on anything other than Jesus, then sin will ultimately drive you. Sin will, will take over the wheel and, and, and sin will begin to, to steer where you're going. Instead, in verse 15, he says, look, if you're going to be focused, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Instead, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So focus set fully on Jesus Being not distracted, being sober-minded means living a holy life. And why do we live a holy life? Well, we live a holy life because God is holy and because we belong to him. And so if we're going to take his name, if we're going to take his benefits, if we're going to take his grace, then what that means is that grace and those benefits have to drive us to holiness, have to to drive us to being like him. And so what the... We've got to ask the question, well, what is holiness? Maybe when you think of holiness, you think of that person who tries to project their holiness, right? That they walk around as if they are holier than thou. You ask them, hey, did did you watch that football game last night? I was praying, man, sorry, I I didn't didn't see it. Hey, hey, have you seen this movie? If it's not in the Bible, I I don't pay attention to it, right? (laughs) Maybe you've met those people before. That's not holiness. Holiness isn't found in projecting or putting on an air about you. Holiness is found in humility. Holiness is found when we recognize our need for grace and then we live in that need. That's where real holiness is found. Holiness is not, I've got to be good today. Holiness is, Jesus, I need your grace today. Jesus, I need your grace right now. Jesus, I need to walk in that grace. Jesus, help me to do that. So when you think about that word holy, he says, be holy. God says, be holy because I am holy. He quotes Leviticus there. When you think about that word holy, here's what that word means. It means set apart. In fact, the root of that word is actually this idea of cutting away cutting to be separate. So when we think about the holiness of God, what we're saying is that God is altogether different. He's altogether distinct. My favorite way to think about this is God is other. He's not like us. He's not like you and me. In fact, he's not like anything in all of creation. He's not like anything in all the world. He is completely different. He's completely distinct. He is completely removed from. This is why oftentimes it is so difficult to wrap our minds around who God is. Right? Think about the Trinity. We'll talk about the Trinity and we'll say, well, well, the Trinity is like this or the Trinity is like that. No, the Trinity is like the Trinity. Right? Our God is so big that it would make sense that our minds cannot contain him. Our minds cannot hold him. Our minds cannot comprehend him. So we talk about the holiness of God. We're saying that God is completely other. He is completely distinct. But then what we see is that, that Peter says that we are to be holy as well. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we are to be set apart. We're to be different. We're to live set apart from our sin. Sometimes we think about holiness. We think that holiness is found in where we go and where we don't go. 
holiness is found in what we do and what we don't do. That, that holiness is found in what we listen to or what we don't listen to. And, and those things certainly contribute to our holiness. That's not where holiness begins. Look back up at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So that means is that holiness begins not first by living set apart from all of the sin out there. Holiness begins by living set apart from the sin in here. Right? The, the, the reason that we are given or the reason that we are attracted to sin is because we, apart from Christ, are sinners. But what Peter's been building this case on is that in Christ, we've been given a new identity. We have been completely changed. And so now we don't live according to the passions of our former ignorance. Instead, now we live according to our new identity that we've been given. We live as holy. Now, one of the things I love about this passage is that this passage kills both legalism and license. So legalism, if you, it's kind of a way to think about it. Legalism says this, says, I am accepted because of what I do. So, so legalism says that God accepts me because of my behavior. But then license says this, says I can do whatever I want because my sins are forgiven. Jesus has died, so it doesn't matter how I live. I, I can do whatever I want. I, I, can, I can do anything I want. What the Lord through Peter says here is both of those are wrong. Both of those are incorrect. So how does this, how do, how does this truth, this passage, kill legalism? Well, it kills legalism because it teaches us that our holiness is rooted in God's grace. Our holiness is rooted in that we have been forgiven and that we continually need his grace. Remember, this entire passage is built off of the first 12 verses where, God is, or where Peter has explained the gospel. Right, where Peter has, has told us, he has taught us, he has given us the gospel. So what Peter is saying in this passage is that you were so broken that God had to die for you. Right, that I am so broken that I, I could only be saved, I could only be forgiven by the blood of Jesus, the son of God. And the only way that I can continue to live in this new identity, the only way I can continue to live as holy is not in my own strength or in my own power, but with my mind fully set on the grace that has been given to me. Amen. But it also kills license because what this passage teaches is that we have been forgiven and even in our forgiveness, we are still called to holiness. Even in our forgiveness, we are still called to be holy, that we fight for holiness precisely because we have been forgiven, right? We have been called holy and now what Peter is saying here, because you have been called holy, live as holy. You've been called holy, so live like it. Imagine a husband and wife, newlyweds, newly married. And the, the new husband goes to introduce his new wife to his coworkers. And he says, this is my friend, right? I don't know about you, but in my family, that's not going great, right? <laughs> like, uh, I'm getting nervous just thinking about it, right? Something has changed right? Your wife is your friend, but she is so much more than that, 
right? You, you have been, amen, right? Uh, you, you have been saved, right? You have been made holy. So live like it. Live with that new identity. And get this, that what's so great about this holiness that we've been called to is your holiness doesn't depend on you. Your holiness depends on God. That as God applies his grace to your heart and your life, he makes you holy. Right? He, he, he gives you what you need. He, he makes you into to what you've been called. Now, now we'll see, okay, well, well how, do we, how do we press into this more? We'll see that later on in this passage. But first we see be holy because of who you are. Next we see this, be holy where you live. Be holy where you live. Remember who Peter's writing to. Uh, Peter is not writing to uh, 21st century Americans. Now understand this, he's writing for us, right? He, he's writing for us so that there are things we can learn. But his audience first were first century believers. More specifically, first century Gentile believers who are now suffering and uh, who are now encountering, tr encountering trials of various kinds. And what he says here is he says, look, just because you're a sojourner, just because you're a stranger, just because you're living in exile, it does not give you an excuse to live like the world around you simply because you're surrounded by it. Remember who Peter's writing to. We, we think that we have it bad. Or maybe we think like, oh, this, this culture is just gone by the wayside. But, but let's remember the world that the gospel came into. There, there were temples set up to false gods where the community would go and the way they would worship those false gods was by sleeping with temple prostitutes. In Peter's day, not long before, not right after, if you called yourself a Christian, that was a crime punishable by death. And the way that you would die, oftentimes there's stories of, of Nero, the emperor, that he wanted lights for his garden. And so the way that he lit his garden was he took Christians and he crucified them to the cross to mock the death of Jesus. And then he lit them on fire to turn them into torches before they had died. And then we, we hear that and then we think, yeah, but they said happy holidays. They didn't say Merry Christmas, right? That's not persecution, right? But Peter is writing to people who are dealing with persecution. It, Peter, if Peter would have said, look guys, just try to blend in and God will understand, everyone would have said this is great. But Peter says, don't blend in, live different, right? Live set apart. Look at verse 17. He says, and if you call on him as father, so if you are a believer, if you have trusted Christ, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he says, if, if you have trusted Christ, if you have been saved, if you call God father, then this father, this one we call father, he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, Think about God as judge. There's two ways that God judges. First, maybe this is the more familiar way, God judges uh, on his judgment seat, right? That there is coming a day where everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God, right? We will answer for our sins or if you are in Christ, praise God, Christ will answer for your sins. But there's another way that God is judge and that's the, the, the kind of judgment that Peter has here. 
And it's that he judges the way we live every day. That, that he judges our deeds. So the way you can think about these deeds, that these deeds are visual expressions of your faith. Everything you do is an expression of your faith. Everything we do is an expression of what we are believing, what we are trusting. Right? And so Peter says here that, that God judges those deeds. And then he says, because God is the judge, then we should live fearing him as exiles in the world. Now, this idea of fearing God, this is important for how we think about uh, the Christian life because over and over and over again, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read that we are to fear God. The Old Testament tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This fear that Peter's talking about here, this isn't some kind of uh, terrifying or paralyzing terror. Instead, what it is, is it's reverence and awe. It's awareness of God's presence and our dependence. And so what Peter says, he says, exile is not an excuse to abandon holiness because God is just as present in exile as he is in the promised land, right? God sees just as much of what we do now as he does then, right? That God is present now. Even right now, God is here and he is with us. God is among us, but God isn't just here and with us and among us. In this place, God is with you in your car as you drive. God is among you as you work. God is with you at the dinner table and he's with you in the way that you parent your kids and and he's, he's with you, he hears the things that you think. He knows the things that you wanted to do and that you wanted to say, but you didn't. And that God is there. And so as we recognize that, then that should drive us to worship him, but should also drive us to understand that holiness is not optional. That holiness is absolutely necessary. Now verses 18 and 19, look how Peter grounds this truth. He says, He says, live with fear, fear the Lord, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So he says, look, you fear God because you've been ransomed, because we've been ransomed from the ways that we inherited. We've been saved from sin and we've been made holy. I love that word ransomed. It's this idea of, of being freed by paying a price. And in Peter's audience, what they would have, where their mind would have went when they heard this word ransomed, it would have gone to slavery. See, in Peter's day, slavery wasn't ethnic, it was economic. So slavery wasn't about where you came from or the color of your skin or something like that. What slavery was about was whenever you incurred a debt when you went into debt to someone and you couldn't pay that debt back, then you were forced into, you were sent into slavery until you paid off that debt with interest or until you were redeemed by another person paying the debt that you owed that you could not pay. And so what Peter says here is that you have been redeemed, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And that precious It's not precious moments precious. It's precious worth precious, right? With the the valuable, the precious blood of Christ. Hey, silver and gold can't save us. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't give your way into heaven. You can't earn your way into heaven. 
but Jesus can get you there, right? And he gets you there through his blood that he has died on the cross, taking your punishment for your sin, for my sin. On the cross, God poured out all of the punishment that you deserved and that I deserved. That Jesus died, but then Jesus rose again. And when he rose again, he defeated your sin. He defeated your death. And so now if you will trust in him, you will be saved. That's it. That's, that's how you get to heaven. You get to heaven, you get eternal life. Not through silver and gold, but through the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed by this blood of Christ. And, and this death of Christ, this was always God's plan. Look at verses 20 and 21. It says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, when Peter says here that he was foreknown, he's not saying that, that God knew that Jesus would be there. No, God is Jesus. Jesus is God, right? They were one in essence, but three in persons. What he's saying is the plan was foreknown. That God had always had a plan, even before the foundation of the world, before the world was created. But this, fan was, this plan was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our sin did not surprise God. Adam and Eve sinning did not surprise God. In fact, God knew that they would sin. And so what he did before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, God made a plan. God made a covenant with his son, with Jesus Christ to redeem the world. Right, that Jesus would come, Jesus would live, Jesus would die, and Jesus would rise again so that we could be saved. So we see here to be holy because of who you are. Be holy where you live. And then finally we see this, be holy with whom you live. Be holy with whom you live. We haven't been left in exile alone. Jesus, Jesus hasn't called us to, to follow him by ourselves. No, we have been called to follow Jesus together. We've been, we've been called to, to follow Jesus with one another. And understand that, that this this is vital to our holiness. So look at verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So these suffering believers, they're called to love one another because they have been saved by Jesus. And notice he says, look, you don't just love one another by saying, hey, I love you. No, you love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That word earnestly, it's this idea of eagerly and genuinely. This kind of love, this is the defining characteristic of the church. This is the defining characteristic of Christian community. Apart from genuine brotherly love, the church is no different than any other organization or institution. If we do not have love for one another that moves beyond just saying I love you, that is actually genuine and eager love, then we have failed to be Christian. We have failed to be a Christian church. And, and, and I would take it a step further. If you personally, if you individually do not have a sincere love for your brothers and your sisters, then what that does is that would lead me to question whether or not you have a sincere love for Jesus. Because what Jesus says is that they will know you by your love for one another. What we're called to over and over again is to love one another. 
Now, I'll be the first to tell you that the church does not always succeed at this. Church people do not always love one another well. We don't always love one another rightly. I had a professor tell me one time, brother, as a pastor, something you need to know is the sheep bite, right? (laughs) But the church is still worth it because the church was bought with the precious blood of Christ. There's a theological reason that we love one another. He says that we love one another because we've been saved, that, that God has loved us and he has saved us and God has loved them and he has saved them and so we should love them. We, we should love one another. But then there's a practical reason. The practical reason is that love for one another is the key to thriving in exile. The church is the place that we are encouraged as we follow Jesus in exile. Without a community of faith, faith in the exile is much more difficult. But Peter's telling his, his audience, he's, he's saying, look, you're in exile, and it is going to be very difficult for you to survive this exile with your faith intact by yourself. That you need one another. We need one another. We need the church. What this means is we need the church more than just one hour a week on Sundays. What it means is that we we need the church more than just coming in and singing to or listening to some songs, then listening to some preaching, and then getting up and leaving. Uh, See, uh, if we do that, what we're doing is we're doing a really good job of consuming but we're not contributing. Think about it another way. We're doing a really good job of being blessed. We're just not being a blessing in return. We've been called to bless one another through our presence. And that's what Peter's saying here. He's saying if you want to be blessed, then commit yourself to the one another. Commit yourself to the church. You know, we want to be serious about this at Central. You know, we, we're growing church. The Lord has blessed our church, but even as we grow larger, we want to grow smaller. And so the, the way that this works at Central and really the way this has worked down through the history of the church uh, is through small groups. That, that in our small groups, that that's a, a way of being known and loved and cared for in a way that isn't possible in other venues or in other environments. And so we want to help people get connected to small groups. I, I could tell you story after story that I have heard just in the last few weeks of how important and how vital a small group has been to someone not just feeling connected and like family at Central, but being cared for, being prayed for, being encouraged. And what I want you to know is, is small groups, they're not just for you, they're for me as well. Five o'clock this afternoon, you will find me in my small group every Sunday. And it's not a small group that I lead. I, I don't go and lead that small group. I sit in the back and I eat the snacks, right? That's, that's my goal. I sit in the back, I eat the snacks. That's why I'm there. That's my blessing to the group. But we want, we want to help you get connected. So we've got a slide that we're going to put on the screen that actually has the wrong date on it. Oh, no, it's got the right date on it. Okay. Uh, so our group connect, you heard Pastor Reed talk about it. September 10th at 6 o'clock. 
It's a great way for you to come and for you to get connected and find a place where you can sit in the back and eat the snacks, all right? Uh, and be prayed for and cared for and loved. And so, uh, man, we would love for you to be there. There's a QR code there on the screen. You can scan that QR code uh, and it'll take you to a form you fill out just to let us know you're coming uh, so that we're prepared. It's gonna be a great night. It's gonna be a low pressure night, right? We're not gonna put a name tag on you and have you stand up and tell us your life story uh, or anything like that. This is gonna be a place uh, for you uh, to get connected with a small group. For, for you to come and to be known and to be loved and be cared for. I've already heard stories from people saying, hey, I can't wait for September 10th. September 10th is gonna be a good Sunday because I'm gonna be there and I'm gonna get connected. And so maybe your next step in following Jesus is this, is getting connected in a small group. You might say, Ethan, I'm not a people person. Well, join the club, right? Uh, Neither are a lot of us. But what Jesus didn't say is to, they'll know you by your love for each other if you're a people person or if you're an extrovert. Now, Jesus says they'll know you by your love, but it's really hard to love people that you don't know. It's really hard to love people that you don't follow Jesus with. So I hope that you'll, you'll join us September 10th at, at six o'clock. But Peter, he says here, he says, you need to love one another earnestly from a, a pure heart. Well, why? No, notice he gives us the why here. He says, since, or because, is another way that word can be translated in verse 23, you've been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Because you've been born again of what is imperishable, not gold or silver, but of the blood of Jesus Christ, love each other. In other words, because the gospel is true, our love for one another must be real. In fact, in many ways, our love for one another is the gospel made visible. The way that we love each other is one way that we preach the gospel to the world, right? That is the only reason that I could love a Seminole fan, right? It's the, the only, that's not true. That's, that was a joke. That's not true, right? There's other reasons I could love them, right? But uh, there, there are so many differences in this room. There are so many differences in our church that the only reason that love between one another would make sense is if something supernatural had taken place. I'd say the only way I could love that person would be an act of God. Well, God has acted, right? God has done something. The only way for genuine love to happen is for the sin in our own hearts to be killed. Look look at verse one. He says, so put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. These aren't just general generic sins. These are interpersonal sins. So he says that you've got to kill. If you want real love to happen, there can be no mean-spirited attitudes towards other people, towards other believers. There can be no underhanded dealings. He says there can be no hypocrisy. Love that literally that word is play-acting. There can be no wearing a mask. There can be no jealousy. It's not allowed. That if real love is gonna happen, those things have to be killed. Well, how are those things killed? How are we made holy? Right, how do we live as holy? I told you we would talk about this. We'll see that in verses two and three. 
Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That is God's word, right? That's what he just talked about there in verses 24 and 25. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he says long for God's word. Long for pure spiritual milk. And, and if you taste that, when you get that, you will grow into what the Lord has called you. You, you might say, Ethan, I just don't feel like I'm growing. Well, have you been drinking the pure spiritual milk? Because that's a promise. He says, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You drink that milk, you, you read God's word, you will grow up into salvation. And then he alludes here in verse three, he alludes to Psalm 34, eight. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What he says here in, Psalm, or in verse three is, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, then get this, you will want what he has for you. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, then you will want what he wants to do in you. You will want what he wants to do through you. See, a life changed by the gospel is a life marked by holiness. Here's what I want you to know. Holiness is always worth it. Holiness isn't easy, but it is always worth it. And one of the chief ways that we've been called to practice holiness, to display holiness, to, to live as holy is in the life of the church and with the church. The church isn't perfect, but what Peter says here is that the church is necessary for sojourners and strangers, for exiles in a strange land like you and like me. Tertullian, a church father, he said, no man will have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. Right, that whenever we are saved, we're not only saved to God, we're also saved to the church. We're also reconciled to one another. But understand this, that, that there's no church if there's no Jesus. So what that means is that church attendance and small group attendance and serving will not save you. No, those things are the response of a heart that has already been saved. Those things are the response of a life that has already been changed by the gospel. If your life hasn't been changed by the gospel, then, then those things won't benefit you at all. Those activities won't benefit you at all. Instead, a, a life changed by the gospel is the prerequisite, is the, the first thing that we must do. A, a life changed by the gospel is a life that has, that has come to, to God by faith. He's come to God trusting and saying, God, I know I'm a sinner and I need a savior and that Jesus is the savior that I need. Jesus is the savior that I must follow and that, that Jesus is the one who has redeemed me and God, I need you to work in me. I need you to save me. I, I need you to change me. So if you have not come to that place, well, that's where holiness begins. Holiness begins where everything else in the Christian life begins at the feet of Jesus. It begins being changed and being marked and being saved by Jesus. Now you might say, Ethan, I've done that. I have, uh, I have trusted Jesus. Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my hope. But maybe say, hey, I've, I've never been baptized. Baptized is, baptism is the first step of obedience. That's, that's why we, we make a big deal about baptism because baptism was given to us by Jesus and it was modeled for us by Jesus and Jesus has commanded us. He hasn't recommended, he's commanded us to be baptized. And so if you've never taken that first step, 
to be baptized is a, a public profession of your faith, well, then we would love we would love to celebrate that with you. You heard Pastor Reed talk earlier about our beach baptism. Our beach baptism day is coming. Uh, it's September 24th. And maybe say, hey, I need to be baptized. And I would love to get baptized at the beach. Well, then I want you to scan that QR code. And we would love to be able to celebrate on that day with you. You might say, even well, the 24th doesn't work for me, or I don't want to get baptized at the beach because I'm afraid of jellyfish or whatever, whatever it may. It's a legitimate fear, right? Uh, you can still scan that QR code. We can set up a time so, to help you walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. Walk in obedience to what he has called you to. Right, don't, don't rob yourself of the joy and the blessing of following Jesus unencumbered, unhindered. Refusing to follow Jesus in baptism is following Jesus hindered because it's a refusal to do what he's called you to do. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing and our, our next steps team will be down here in the corners. Maybe you'd say, I need to talk to someone a little bit more about following Jesus, I need to talk to someone a little bit more about getting baptized. Well, they're here to talk with you. They're here to pray with you. We can set up a time to talk more later as well. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for the call to holiness. Father, we know that this call to holiness, it's a good call, that it's a gift of holiness. Because no one will see the Father without holiness is what your word tells us in Hebrews. And God, we want to see you. God, we want to be holy. Make us a holy people. God, make us serious about drinking from the pure spiritual milk. Make us serious about engaging in scripture. Make us serious about following you. Lord, I I pray for those who need to be saved that you would save them even now. Father, for those who, who need to follow you in baptism, that, that they, would, they would take that step today. Maybe those who need to take that step of engaging in a small group to help them walk in holiness. Father, I pray that you would make that happen. Father, I pray that you would work in their hearts. God, we love you. Help us to live like we do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.